0: You're tuned in to ShiftHappens.media. My name is Jeff.
1: And I'm Anna. And this week we're talking to Tom Campbell, author of My Big Toe, which is a trilogy that unifies uh, relativity. Okay, here I am needing my teleprompter. Uh, That unifies (laughs) relativity, quantum mechanics, and metaphysics. Tom says that we are living in a virtual reality, that the purpose of that reality is to move toward order or away from entropy and the way to do that is to grow up and become love. So Tom, you're just launching a Kickstarter campaign right now that is designed to fund some experiments that you are hoping are going to support your theories. What yes. are you hoping the results are going to be?
2: Um, uh, the results of the th- of the experiments, I take it, not the results of the kickstart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, both, uh, but.
2: <laughs> yes, I'm hoping to make of lots the kickstart to to be very positive. That we will do get enough money to fund doing these experiments. These experiments are um, quantum mechanics experiments. Uh, very similar to the double slit experiment, but uh, in, in many ways quite different, but it uses the same basic uh, science as the double slit experiment. They will demonstrate very strongly, with strong evidence, that this is a virtual reality. I'm hoping to perform some uh, miracles here. By that I mean something that is impossible, I hope will happen. and. Uh, There'll be no other way to explain this rationally other than that this is a computed reality, or you might say a virtual reality, a simulation, uh, all those mean the same thing, or a reality uh, based on information. Those are all different ways of saying a virtual reality. So what that means is that it's computed, it's computed reality, just like the Sims are computed, or World of Warcraft is computed, or No Man's Sky is computed, these are all virtual reality games that uh, um, some of them my kids played. I don't have much experience with them, but uh, if you have kids that are teenagers, or at least have been teenagers, you probably know about some of these virtual reality games, and that all virtual reality works um, in a similar way. I mean, there's some differences between ours and, say, The Sims, but Basically, the, the mechanics of how they work, the logic of how they work, is the same everywhere. And that is that a virtual reality cannot compute itself. That means the computer cannot be inside of the virtual reality. So the elf in the world of warcraft will never turn over a rock or look in a building and find the computer that's computing the, you know, his reality, the the uh, the world of warcraft reality so the computer has to be somewhere else some other reality frame that is non-physical to the elf from the elf's viewpoint the world of warcraft set is physical it's got trees and rocks and rivers and streams and houses with doors and they can't get the door open unless you twist twist the doorknob it's got all that physical stuff in it so it seems physical to the elf but the computer has to seem non-physical has to be some other reality system The same goes for the Elf's consciousness, and we call the Elf's consciousness the player, the person playing the game. And that person playing the game makes all the decisions for the Elf. The Elf can't do anything without the player having, you know, his consciousness tell the Elf what to do. You know, Elf run, Elf fight, Elf jump up and down, Elf dance, whatever that elf does, the player has to tell him to do it, otherwise they just stand there and they'll do anything, okay? So that means that the consciousness also has to be non-physical in another reality frame from the elf, because the elf is just a computed character. It's just uh, eye candy, if you will, okay? The elf can't not be conscious. The elf is just ones and zeros on a hard drive someplace. Those ones and zeros keep changing as time goes on, but that's all it is. That can't be conscious. So consciousness is in a conversation with the computer. It's the same way if you're a player playing World of Warcraft, you're in communication with the server that serves World of Warcraft, the computer. And the player and the computer exchange data all the time. That's really all that's going on. The, uh, the virtual reality is this kind of eye candy so the player can look and see the consequences of the elf doing whatever the player told the elf to do. There's consequences because it's a multiplayer game. There's lots of things going on there. So that's the way our reality works. So what I've just said then is that our bodies are avatars. You and I and, and uh, everybody else walking around here in this so-called physical reality are the avatars. We have consciousness, but that consciousness exists in a non-physical reality frame to us. And the computer exists in a non-physical reality frame to us, and consciousness and the computer have to be in the same reality frame, because they're constantly exchanging data. You don't just constantly exchange data between reality frames. You have to do that within the same reality frame. So then, that's why I end up with a virtual reality, is because I studied consciousness a long time and found out that consciousness was fundamental and the physical reality was not. And it took me 35 years to figure out how all that worked, a lot of testing and a lot of of science and a, uh, a lot of research. But the only thing that made sense that brought it all together was the fact that this is a reality that is information based, which means computed, which means virtual. So, one of the ways we're different than, uh, than the ELF is that our reality wasn't programmed. The ELF's reality in World of Warcraft was programmed, so every tree had to be put there by a programmer. Well, he didn't have to really code every tree, he coded it once and then he pasted it probably a thousand times all over the map, and maybe he coded 10 or 20 of them and then he pasted those all around on the map, but they all have been at one point coded. In our reality, we, our virtual reality evolved. It started with initial conditions and a rule set, and the run button was hit, and it just evolved to be what we have today. And that uh, evolution uh, is what I call the big digital bang. It wasn't much of a bang. It actually was a, uh, somebody pushed a run button. That was the bang. So you had initial conditions, which was a, uh, a very high temperature, high pressure, tiny ball of plasma. And then when you hit the run button, the rule set determined what happened to that plaza. What did it do? Well, the rule set was such that it expanded, it cooled, it made suns, it made planets, it made galaxies, and here we are. We're part of that evolution, of that simulation. And though that sounds kind of strange, we do have in multiple universities now virtual realities that have been made the same way, where they start with initial run button and see how they evolve. They're not as extensive as this one that we're playing in, but still the, it's the same concept and the same principles and uh, it works very very nicely. You never know exactly what you're going to get at the at the far end. which so makes them very interesting. So anyway that's just a little bit about uh, my theory of uh, kind of where it comes from, why, why virtual reality uh, and um, kind of what are we in this game.
1: So, you have a, a, a theory about the nature of reality and that it is a virtual reality and that mm. consciousness is operating the avatar mm. and that consciousness began the process with this rule set. Do you have any uh, concept of what the true nature of consciousness is?
2: Consciousness is an information system. That's about as you know as, as much detail I can give you as far as what consciousness is. It's an information system, which makes sense because our, our awareness, what we're conscious of is just information, data that we get through our senses that creates our reality. So it's an information system. Now, how did it start and its origin? Uh, I have some hand waving that I can do about that. That means, um, hand-waving. That's kind of a physics term for conjecture. You can have some conjecture about that that makes it sound reasonable, but we will never be able to answer that directly because we are consciousness. And because we're consciousness, we can't get outside of consciousness to see how consciousness got started. And if you can't get outside of it, then you can't see how it started. You see, it's it's a problem with beginnings. We have that with any anything that's a beginning because you weren't out uh, in the operating room or in the delivery room to watch yourself being born because you hadn't been born yet. You see, it's that sort of thing. Beginnings are really impossible for us to know, you know, in a direct way. So that's a problem. Now there's, there's two ways that people tend to do with this. And I think both of them are faulty. They tend to, to deal with this. And that is one. They end up in an in a, a, a infinite regression. Oh, well, tell me that this is the cause, and I'll ask you, what caused that? And then if you tell me what caused that, I'll ask you, what caused that? And we'll just keep going, and eventually, of course, you just won't be able to answer. So the origin seems to be an infinite regression. That doesn't make any sense. The other way they do, people deal with it is they just say, something popped out of nothing. There was nothing, and then there was something. And that really doesn't make sense either. So I think the only rational thing we can say is, we don't know. And just leave it at that. That doesn't imply that it's an infinite regression. And it doesn't apply that something popped out of nothing. It just says that we don't know. And more stronger than that, we'll have to say we can't know because we're consciousness. And we can't get outside the system in order to see the origin. So from our viewpoint inside the system, it just is. And that's about as much as we can say it, you know, say about it, and still be logical and reasonable. Anything else we say about it is just wild conjecture. Whether we say it popped out of nothing or God did it or it's an infinite regression, all of that is just, you know, kind of conjecture that doesn't really add anything. So I just like to admit my ignorance and say, "I don't know. Can't know. Uh, it's just the way it is. You know, you have to learn to live with that answer, and sometimes that really annoys people because they they want to know everything. Matter of fact, a lot of people think it they makes do know sense. Everything.
1: How can an elf inside World of Warcraft understand what the user is in reality?
2: Right. How can he understand that? It's it's outside of his reality frame, and therefore he's stuck in that reality frame. He can't get outside of World of Warcraft and look around the computer room. It just, he can't do that. So um, it's the same sort of thing. Yes. So we're just stuck not knowing and that just needs to be okay. You know, live gracefully with uncertainty. So that's that's the issue. Uh, Not a very satisfying
0: answer, but it's the best answer that we can give. Would you say that that consciousness, could it also be called the higher self? As in the player of the game?
2: Well, I I come up with several metaphors about consciousness that kind of break it apart a little. But I caution everyone listening that these are metaphors. Now, you come up with a theory. And in order to talk about the theory, you have to give things names and functions. So my theory is a logical theory. And all the, the major chunks of logic, then I give a name. So we can talk about them. And these are metaphors. So the fact that I talk about the larger consciousness system is an information system, that's a metaphor. Then I talk about there is an individuated unit of consciousness. Well, that's a piece of this larger consciousness system. And then I talk about this individuated unit of consciousness partitions off a piece of itself that then logs on to the avatar to play a human in this virtual reality. So that gives you several levels there, where you have the consciousness playing the avatar, a piece of an individual unit of consciousness, and an individuated unit of consciousness, a piece of the larger consciousness system. So if you if we'd like to call um, the individuated unit of consciousness as our higher self, that works. You know, we can say that that uh, that function, this individuated unit of consciousness, has the logical function of accumulating all the experience. It's the accumulator of experience. So, because our our purpose here is to grow up and become love, because that's how you optimize um, uh, consciousness. That's how you optimize a low entropy, which means uh, high, higher evolved consciousness. So, you and I are really individual units of consciousness. That that's what we are. Okay, and that is the accumulation function. You have to um, have many life experiences in order to learn these lessons of growing up and becoming love, not an easy thing to learn how to let go of your fear. So it has to happen with more than one experience packets, what I call experience packets and what other people would call reincarnation. I tried to avoid a lot of the old words that had religious connections and other sorts of emotional baggage connected with them so that people could look at these ideas without a lot of prejudice one way or another. So, that's also a logical necessity of the, of the overall theory. It has to have learning. Learning is cumulative. You don't just suddenly learn everything. You, know, you, have, you can't learn B before you've learned A, and you can't learn C before you've learned A and B. So learning is like that. You can't take advanced calculus before you've had arithmetic. It just doesn't work. So because learning is cumulative and because learning is necessary for consciousness to evolve, then we have to have more than one experience packet because the things we're trying to learn are very difficult, like getting rid of your fear. So that's part of it. So yes, a higher self could be the individuated unit of consciousness. That's your cumulative function that, that uh, takes all of the lifetimes and goes over all of them and looks at all that data and sees what it can learn from it and what it needs to do next. And you know, there's a lot of metaphors that are around, like higher self, you know, higher, um, let's see, well, metaphor like God, right? You can, a lot of people think the uh, larger conscious system is just another metaphor for God, because basically it is our creator. We're pieces of it, uh, even in in its image, if you want to say that. We're just chunks of consciousness, you know, that are uh, subsets of the larger conscious itself. So. We can take lots of metaphors, but that's kind of the way the metaphors fall out, As larger conscious system is kind of godlike, but it's not um, infinite. It's not unlimited. It's not always, uh, uh, shall I say, it? it's not perfect. There's parts of its system that sometimes doesn't f- function very well and it may take it a while to figure that out, if, and sometimes it never figures that out. So it's a real system. It's not supernatural. It's just a natural system. Again, we don't know how it started, but it's a natural system. In order for it to survive, it has to lower its entropy. Entropy is a measure of disorder. Okay, So it has to lower its entropy, which means it has to create information. Now, the relationship between entropy and information is this. If you have an information system, and all the bits in the information information system are random, there is no information. Randomness carries no information. But if you order some of those bits, make symbols out of them, you know, put them in some order of some sort, now you have information. Just a simple pattern contains information. You know, if I go up, down, up, down, up, down, what's next? Well, it'll be up, because you've seen the pattern. The next one's up. Well, that's information that's inside the pattern. You see, so information requires uh, organization requires you know f- structure so that's how an information system evolves is to create information to create organization and structure and then we have a uh, a system that is evolving it uh, has different technologies that help it evolve that is that help it find new ways to make patterns, new ways to build structures, new ways to reconfigure itself in way, in lower entropy forms, things that have more meaning, more significance. Well, consciousness is a social system. This larger conscious system is itself the executive uh, operating system, if you like, the executive function, but it's also all of these individual units of consciousness, and they all have free will. Every IUC, Individuated Unit of Kindness, has its own free will. So it has a system of individuals with free will and it had to learn this on its own, in its own painful way, that the optimal way to organize and configure Individuated Units with free will is through caring and kindness and love and cooperation. That and That enables the maximum amount of novelty, the maximum amount of combinations of ways to organize if everyone's cooperative. The opposite of that is fear. Instead of evolving toward love, if we move toward fear, we're de-evolving. Fear is a high entropy thing. Fear always, you know, creates more fear. Fear is is kind of wild, you know, fear is sort of crazy. Fear doesn't have trust. If you fear, then you can't trust anybody because they're liable to do you in, or take your stuff, or take advantage of you. So there's no trust. Without trust, um, you you don't have. You can't build social structures. Social structures can only build so far, and they start to implode after a while because of the lack of trust. What happens in a fear-based organization is that because there's fear that others will take what you have. They tend to the individuals that are fear-based tend to band together for little self-protection groups, so that they're a little tougher to take things away from. And then other groups band together for self-protection groups, and pretty thing pretty soon those groups are warring with each other so they can pr- get each other's stuff because it's not just about protection; it's also about what you can take and what you can keep. And in you know in a while, when that gets stable, you end up with what five percent of the individuals owning, you know, 95% of all the resources and there's a lot of hierarchy and at the bottom you have the peasants. You know, and that's the big number. That's the it's kind of like the pyramid, you know, the peasants make up the big part at the bottom and then you have strata's of hierarchy as you go up. Well, that sounds like where we live. That's the kind of world we live in. It's a fear-based world. And that's why that's why we're here to grow up, you see. It's a it's a very fear-based world and that is very suboptimal as far as making as much as you can make out of the resources. You know, producing the optimal, the optimal uh, meaning, the opti- optimal significance, the optimal information is done through the love side. Caring, cooperation, working together. You see, that builds now. That will optimize the resources that are available, whereas the fear side doesn't optimize anything. The fear side actually is unstable as things grow up and get more powerful they tend to come apart it's not a stable system it's not sustainable it can't go on it always ends up you know self-destructive so it's not only not optimal it's not even stable it just it destroys itself so uh, that kind of sounds like us too (laughs) in many ways so anyway that's the difference so that's why that's why in a consciousness system that's an information system that's trying to evolve um, the quality of its consciousness, that means lower its entropy, get more information that's meaningful and significant. The way it does that is by each individuated units of consciousness learning to lower its entropy, care, you know, uh, become love, cooperate, think about how all of us can do this together better than how much I can grab for myself. So that's the connection between consciousness, information system, evolution, and the reason we're here is to become love. That's all part of a logical uh, process. Now, I've done it very quickly. It probably takes me 10 chapters to do that in the book, and there's a lot more detail. Um, I guess your listeners will just have to trust me that that is a logical process and it's nice because it tells us what we're here for and it tells us why was the virtual reality made in the first place why would something make a virtual reality like this well before they had this before consciousness had this virtual reality consciousness just communicates it's what it does it trades information it's an information system so what individuated units of consciousness do is communicate with each other but there's no consequences it's like uh, you know, 100,000 people in a chat room with no rules. It's kind of hard to learn and grow up under those conditions because it really doesn't matter what you say or what you do. There are no consequences. So the evolution of consciousness was slow. It was very difficult to grow up, learn how to cooperate in, a, in an environment where there were few consequences. So this virtual reality was made with a much tighter rule set where there are a lot more rules that you had to abide by. It's the rules that make the game, right? If we sit down and say, well, let's play a game. And you say, what are the rules? And I say, there are none. Well, what's the game? See, there is no game. Rules make a game. And the more rules you have, the more complex the game is. The more complex the game is, the more strategy you have to have, the more things that affect other things, the more interaction there is. That's what the rules will do for you. Uh, so we have a rule set and a and a uh, initial conditions, creates a virtual reality so that individuated units of consciousness can log on and make choices now that are meaningful, make choices that have consequences, choices that you can learn from, moral choices, caring choices, or fear choices, domination choices, and then you learn from the result of that. The nice thing about that is that if you understand that's the game and you start working at it, you'll find your life gets to be really happy and nice. And uh, you enjoy things. Things start to work out from you. Synchronicities just happen to you to help you get to where it is you're trying to go because you're trying to do the way the system's set up for you to learn and to grow. And as much as you're self-centered and greedy, you find that you are unhappy, you're miserable. No matter how much money you've got to spend, and no much, no matter how much power you've got, you're still unfulfilled, unhappy, and a miserable camper instead of a happy camper. So it boils down to not only telling us why we're here, but telling us what we can do while we're here to make our life fun and happy and productive. We just have to, you know, get about the process of lowering our entropy evolving the quality of our consciousness
0: so what happens then okay in my experience i've been on the quote-unquote spiritual path for a number of decades and i did pursue the path of love but myself and other people that we know um, in our circle of friends whatever um, life hasn't been that easy it's difficult sometimes to live by a higher code if you will while still living in the 3d matrix if you will so that's the question is is I understand that it's it's a transition It, it it doesn't happen overnight but I've really endeavored in my life to be a decent person, but yet I guess I manifested situations that helped me develop a muscle. But quite frankly, I'm a bit tired of developing the muscle. (laughs) I just want to be happy, (laughs) right? Yeah. Well, right. I can explain that. Am I clear in my question? Yeah, absolutely.
2: The reason that that tends to happen for people and you'll see a lot of people that are on a spiritual path and you know, often they'll even get burnout on that path. You know, it'll just like, it's not going anywhere. They don't feel like they're growing. It's just not working for them and they're still unhappy. They're still miserable. They're still struggling yet. They've been, you know, trying to walk the talk and it just doesn't seem to be working. The, the, the problem here is that they are working at the intellectual level. They're doing things because they think they should, because these seems like the right thing to do, because they make sense. That's doing it at the intellectual level. So you look at it, and you say, "Okay, being kind, that sounds like a good thing. I should be kind. So now you try to be kind. You see a little old lady walking across the street, and she's having trouble. Then you go help her, because you're kind, and you want to be kind, so you help. All of that is intellectual you're acting. It's an acting thing. You're doing the things you think you should do. You're doing them because you think you should, because they sound like good ideas. But the difference is you need to be kind, not just act kind. So mostly people on a spiritual journey use their minds to decide what's the right thing to do and why it's the right thing to do. But I, when you change yourself, when you actually grow up, It's not about doing the right thing, it's about being the right person. In other words, when you see that little old lady, you don't think, oh, I should help her because she's having a problem and nice people would help her and I'm a nice person so I'll help her. You see her and you don't think about it at all. There's no analysis needed. You just see her and you go help her without thinking about it. It's just part of you the way you are. It's not part of the way you think you ought to be and there's a fine line there and I know most people would feel like oh I really am I feel like it I really am but when you are when you be it rather than act it and acting is done with all the right you know the right reasons and the right attitudes you want to be kind you want to be helpful you want to be part of the solution not part of the problem but as long as it comes mostly from your intellect and understanding of what's the right way to be It's not going to affect your growth very much, and you will get burnt out on it once you be it and you just are kind because it's just the way you are. You don't think about it at all. It's not not even a choice for you that you intellectually make. You just do it. That then you will get happy, even in a world that is as mean and tough as our world is. You'll still be happy. Those things that, that annoy you, that make you unhappy, aren't important anymore. Because what you do is you help people. What you do is you serve. What you do is, you know, you are, uh, you're positive, you're cooperative. You see somebody needs help, you just help them. Just because you feel like that's what you want to do. Not because you think it's a good idea. So I think many people are trying very hard to do the right thing. They're trying very hard to grow spiritually. But they tend to read books, go to workshops, you know, deal with things intellectually because they learn this is the right path. And they work at it, but that's not what helps you grow up. You have to be it. It's at a different level. You have to be it down at your that your. Uh, I call it the being level. You might call it the intuit, You know the intuitive level. Um, it's the it's the level you're in. You know when, when we talk about people being in the zone you know, maybe it's a painter and he's some professional painter and he's painting and he doesn't even need tape. He's just, you know, tipping his brush and sliding it down and he makes perfectly straight lines, puts the paint right to the edge of the glass and never makes a mistake. And he's very good and very fast because he's in the zone. As soon as he starts thinking about it, Oh, I don't want to get any paint on the glass here. That's when he'll mess up. You know, when you're in the zone, you don't think about it. You just are when you learn how to type, in the beginning you use your intellect let's see the T's over here the E's up there you know the I's over on the other hand index finger and you have to do that And you're very very terrible typer because once you think about it and look at the keys you just can't ever get very fast but eventually you get past that and you just do it without thinking about it your fingers know what to do your mind reads the words and the fingers just do whatever they do without any instruction whatsoever that's another being level thing so it's the same way with being kind or anything else. It's not something that you, that you work at. It's something you are. So if you're working at it, you're probably going about it in the wrong way. You need to just be it. And the being, it requires a change in you. Once you change yourself at the being level, you're no longer the same person anymore, you're different. And when you get rid of these fears, you know, talk about fear being the opposite of love when talk about getting rid of fear that doesn't mean that you learn to suppress the fear you know it doesn't mean that you act better okay there's some something people say these things and they insinuate that you didn't do something right and you get angry because you know that upsets you or they give you they say something that's not true about you that's negative or whatever and you get upset about that you see That's fear. There's a fear in there of being inadequate or not doing things right or about not being liked or loved or something that creates that anger. Well, I'm not talking about grit your teeth and smile instead of getting angry. I'm not talking even about don't grit your teeth and just smile and don't get angry and, you know, walk away. All that's acting better. But that's civilizing, but it doesn't help you grow up. It has to be so when that person says that nasty thing about you in public, in front of in front of uh, people that you know, it just doesn't bother you. You're not upset about it. You might even go over and talk to them and say, "Well, how did you end up with that opinion?" Or, uh, "Gee, you know, um, you you look like you're kind of upset yourself. Is there anything uh, you know I've done or said that's uh, creating that problem?" In other words, instead of getting upset, you deal with it in a very positive way. Getting upset is dealing with it in a negative way. One's based on fear, the other's based in love. So the, diff- the thing isn't to suppress the fear and act nice, it's to get rid of the fear and be nice. So you don't have buttons anymore. So now all that stuff in that nasty world that just upsets you and annoys you, doesn't upset you and annoy you anymore. It just is the way it is and you can accept it. It's not about you, you know, it's about the world and other people. And uh, you try to be part of everybody's solution and you never get upset, so you're, you're not angry. So just by definition, you are happy because there's nothing that makes you unhappy because you accept things the way they are. So that's really the difference there. Most people go on a spiritual path because they read about it, and it sounds good. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, we should all be nice. That's a good thing, and we should do this and that. And this is a good, good model, and we follow it. And we try to follow it, but trying to do it and even being successful at it You know, being successful at smiling instead of, you know, instead of cursing. That's not the point. The point is to be it, not to do it. It's a being thing, not a doing thing.
1: So when so many people in the world have started off with fairly traumatic early lives, um, you know, often coming into situations where they weren't treated terribly well for whatever reason, Maybe they had alcoholic parents or, you know, circumstances. Maybe they were living in extreme Mm -hmm. poverty. How do they then move from a place where they've been conditioned to feel fear and to not trust into that sense of being because you're just okay with yourself? How do they release the fears? Do you have any insights into that?
2: Yeah, sure. Releasing fear is a thing that, is a lot harder to do than it is to say you know it's easy to say oh just get rid of your fear but it's not that simple to get rid of the fear and there's a couple of ways that i can tell you that to go about it that might be helpful one is you're probably not aware of your fears most people are are up to their eyebrows in fear most of their choices are based upon that fear they make choices because of their fears and they have no idea what these fears are. It's just kind of the way they are. That's the way they see it. It's not like it's a fear is making me do this. They don't see it that way. They just feel that's, that's me. That's the way I am. Well, fears are hard to see. Beliefs are hard to see. We don't see the things we believe because we believe them. They're just facts in our mind. That's just true. So we never see them as a belief because that's the nature of belief. You don't see belief as a belief. You see it as a fact, so you can't find your beliefs. But the one thing you can find the one thing that's really easy to find is ego. Ego is anytime you don't feel happy. Ego is any negative feeling you have and feelings are at that being level. That's the real you at the being level of those feelings. So if you feel, angry, you feel frustrated, you feel upset, you feel annoyed, you feel even just stressed and uh, um, you know all of those negative things, unfulfilled, you know, we could maybe make a long list of, of negative uh, adjectives. there. Are Would
1: sadness be ego as well?
2: Not necessarily. Love has a component of sadness with it, and I'll, I'll talk to that right after this. So if you feel anything that's negative, any of those un- not happy feelings, that's ego. The fear is a product. I mean, the ego is a product of fear. Okay. If you didn't have fear, you wouldn't have ego. If you didn't have the fear, you would, wouldn't would have many beliefs. It's the fear creates most of the ego or all of the ego and most of the beliefs. So if you feel upset, somebody said something rude to you and it upsets you. Well, look at why you're upset. And if you If you look at it and take responsibility for being upset, in other words, you don't say, well, I'm upset because George said such and such. That's why I'm upset. No, that's blaming your being upset on George. You're upset because you choose to be upset. That's your choice. You could choose not to be upset. That's within your ability to do that. You choose to be upset. So first you take responsibility for it. Now say, "Okay, it wasn't George that made me angry it was some fear that i have that i cho- i chose to be upset as a reaction to what george said and you will probably find a fear that comes out of your childhood a lot of our fears we take on in childhood you'll find a you'll find a fear of being inadequate of not being uh, appreciated of not being lovable not being this not being that and when george said that It just triggered that fear because he was telling you that you were inadequate, that you weren't doing it right. And that just triggered that fear of being inadequate or being incompetent or whatever else or not being seen by other people as being adequate and competent. So it triggers that fear. And that's what makes you angry. Well, when you get rid of that fear, then George can say the same thing. And it just doesn't matter to you. You don't have that fear. You don't react that way. And now you have an ability to actually deal with it rather than throw more gasoline on that fire, which is what you do when you get angry, you know, now you can actually deal with it in a way that maybe will solve the problem between you and George. So that's how you can find your fear is find anytime you feel not happy. Anytime you have a negative feeling, find the fear and then work on getting rid of it. Okay. How do you work on getting rid of it? You have to have an intent, a real, intent at the being level, not an intellectual tent. If it's just intellectual, oh yeah, I see that. I'd like to get rid of that. That's not going to help. You have to really want to get rid of it at the being level, at an intuitive level. And when you do, over time, it'll just go away just from that intent. Because if you keep that intent present in your mind, what'll happen is you'll catch yourself getting angry again when people say things. And you go, oh, I don't want to be like that. And you'll just back away from it. Well, now that's your intellect coming in and making you act nicer. But that reinforces your intent to be nicer. And as that happens over and over again, the fear will just gradually go away. And what you'll generally find if you get back to the cause of the fear, it was something really silly, something really trivial. You know, when you were... uh, five years old, uh, your mom brought home a new toy for your little sister and your little brother and you didn't get one. You know, it's just that simple. And from then on, you felt inadequate, unworthy. You see a trivial little thing like that. And that's where we pick those things up often as, as children and they haunt us then the rest of our life. So most of our fears when we finally get to the point that we know what they are, the next thing we have to do is we have to own them. Yes okay i own that i am that way that's my fear and then we look at it and say well how has that fear affected my choices oh you'll see all kinds of choices that you made over you know in your memory that how that's how that fear affected it okay i see that see i got angry a whole lot you know that's how that's why my first marriage didn't work oh that's why i never got along with my son you know that's why you can see this anger thing then it's been a problem a long time so you will, once you see how it has affected you, that will give you the the gumption that you need to really get down and work on getting rid of it. Okay, so you own it. After you own it, you just have to let it go, not do it. The intellect will help you here, but if you have enough intent on it, you'll get there because intent modifies future probability. And just with that intent, you'll end up getting rid of the fear because that intent will make you do all the right things required to get rid of it. So the rest of it is kind of automatic. So that's kind of the way you get over your fear. Now it's not an easy process. You know, it's not an easy process. And once you find a fear, you will probably catch yourself reacting because of that fear over and over and over again. And you might get discouraged. I'm not making any progress here. Every time somebody belittles me, I get upset and You just have to keep working on it and it will go away. It will just dissipate with time because you have an intent, but again, not an intellectual intent that won't help an intellectual intent only won't help. The intellect can be part of the process, but it can't be the main result of the process. It's again, it's not acting nicer. It's being nicer. It's getting rid of the fear. So that's how you do it. And the first fear is the hardest one. It may take you a year, to get rid of a big fear that you've had all your life. It may take you two years or 10 years, but after that, the next one is a lot quicker, and the one after that's faster yet, and pretty soon you can shed these things pretty quickly because you've kind of got the hang of the process, and by getting rid of that first fear, you're different now. You're a different person. You are not the same human being you were before. Without that fear, you are different. You see the world different. Your reality changes. That's why uh, George uh, being rude to you doesn't affect you anymore because your reality's changed. That's no longer a problem for you. You see, and what other people think about you generally is not so much a problem for you anymore. It's uh, you know it's not about you. It's about them, and you know, they can be however they are. And you learn to let people be the way they are. You can't change everybody. You only change yourself. So you begin a, to be a happy person even if you're in very rough and very unhappy environment. So what do these children do? Well, they're going to have to outgrow it. They're going to have to see it just like everybody else does. Um, Some people have a harder time than others at outgrowing it. Um, That's just the way life is when you're here. And that's why we have to have so many different experience packets because it's not an easy thing to do. And you may have to do this, you know, 10,000 times before you substantially, you know, get rid of most of your fear. So it's, it's not a simple thing.
1: we were talking Um, about sadness as another feeling.
2: Yes, exactly. Is that from ego? Yeah, no, not, it can be from ego. If your sadness is, oh, woe is me. Everything always happens to me. You know, I have all this trouble. Yes, that's sadness. And yes, that's nothing but ego and, and, you know, self pity. On the other hand, you can be a being of love. And you can see a lot of people around you that you love, that you care about. And you can see how they hurt themselves, how they're dysfunctional, how their fear causes them all this grief. And, you know, they they argue with each other. They do this and that. And you can see families that are tearing themselves apart. You can see all this stuff. And it makes you sad because it's, it's so unnecessary. You know, it's just their fear. And that's a very sad thing. But you have to let people be who they are. You can't go in and say, okay, you folks, listen to me. I'm going to tell you how to act better. You know, that doesn't work. That just makes it worse. You just have to let them be. They're on their own path. They have to grow up however they do. Now, you can help them by giving them an environment in which they feel stronger. They feel um, empowered to make choices. If you can give them that environment, and that environment usually means you're non-judgmental. They can make any choice they want and you're not gonna give them any grief over it. Otherwise, you're not gonna help them there. So if you can give them an environment that makes them feel more secure, then they're more likely to make a better choice. But that's about all you can do is help their environment. You can't really help anybody else grow up. So that's sad. You can see a lot of sad stuff going on that's so unnecessary and so dysfunctional And there's nothing you can do about it at all. It's just the way people are and they have to grow up. And yes, love can be sad, but it's not a downer in the sense that now you sit around and and mope about it or feel distressed about it because now that's ego. You see, you just accept it. That is the way it is. There's not really nothing you can do about it. Everybody has to grow up on their own path. You had to grow up on your own path, you know, to get there. And so does everybody else. So you try to be helpful. You try not to throw gasoline on their fires. You know, you, you try to do the best you can, but sometimes you just have to leave it alone. You walk away. And if you can't walk away because it's a loved one you have to deal with all the time, well, try to be so positive and so understanding and so non-judgmental that it makes it easier for them to change themselves so that's so yes love can be sad it love i mean sadness does not mean that it's ego it can be ego but not necessarily usually sadness uh, turns into ego when it turns into self-pity when it turns into being a victim